Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to an extra edition of BFBS SITREP. Just under a week ago, Ukrainian forces walked into the city of Kherson, liberating it from eight months of Russian occupation, having forced Moscow's troops to withdraw. It is the most significant victory since the earliest days of this war. But what comes next? General Philip Breedlove, who used to be America's top general in Europe and NATO's most senior commander, has been telling me what he thinks both sides will do next. But he also spells out his frustrations, the limits countries like the US and UK are putting on their support for Ukraine and the red lines they've set for Ukraine to defend itself. Russia, he argues, has been rewarded for years of bad behavior without facing the consequences. It's like raising a two-year-old. If you allow bad behavior to stand, or if you reward bad behavior, what do you expect in the future? Now, just before we hear at length from General Breedlove, let's hear from Ukraine itself. Filmmaker and former Royal Marine Emil Gesson has spoken to SITREP from there several times during the war. He's now in Kherson, where people have been celebrating the city's liberation, but as you'll hear, are still very much living in the shadow of the fighting. Thousands of civilians who have been occupied by the Russians for the last eight months, um, all coming out, kissing the soldiers, hugging the soldiers, asking the soldiers to sign their flags, their jackets. Um, so the feeling here in Kherson is very much one of um, triumph and a, and a victory. The city is intact, completely near enough. The fighting didn't actually reach into the city because the Russians done a tactical withdrawal from the outskirts very quickly, moving into the centre and then out. But the civilians here who had a referendum only six weeks ago and the Russians telling them that this is now part of the Russian Federation is they're overwhelmed by the fact that the Ukrainian forces are back in control. And you can hear explosions there in the distance. There's still fighting going on. Ukrainians are targeting the Russians who are only on the other side of the river, which is 500 metres behind me. So the battle for Kherson isn't fully over at the moment. A guy yesterday was telling me how Ukrainian flags, um, symbolic football shirts and stuff like that, they had to hide. They had to dig holes in their gardens, hide them in there, make little hiding places like you would hear during the Second World War um, to hide anything that was Ukrainian because if the Russians had caught them with any Ukrainian memorabilia to be taken away. General Breedlove, it's really good to speak to you. Kherson was a significant victory for Ukraine, but what do they need to do now to capitalise on the advance? Well, all eyes are on the winter, you know, in the Game of Thrones parlance, winter is coming. Well, winter has arrived in Ukraine and, and the winter in Ukraine is, is uh, typified by mud, then frozen ground and then mud. And I think that the world and certainly Russia expects and hopes that Ukraine will pause for these winter times. And what I hear coming out of President Zelensky and what we hear specifically coming out of their senior general officers is there will be no pause. Right now, Russia has, as you know, suffered a strategic defeat north of Kyiv. Uh, strategic defeat in the vicinity of Kharkiv, the Ukrainian military. They're having operational level success now in the South that could turn to strategic success in the South if they keep the pressure on. And I believe it is every intention of the Ukrainian military to keep pushing the Russians back and not give them time to reconstitute their forces for follow-on actions. And we've seen video of Ukrainian troops in small boats crossing to the 
Kinburn Peninsula, the hook-shaped peninsula at the mouth of the Dnieper estuary, and on the Russian side. Does this suggest they are probing ways to sweep around and encircle the Russian forces? Well, I've heard a very uh, good uh, military uh, advisor talk about really this this arm on the west side of the Nipper River is also tied to actions on the east side. Now it's further north right now on the east side, but this particular analyst describes this as a two-armed approach going down the west and the east side of the river with the, the intended goal, of course, to push Russia out of all of their uh, captured lands in, in Ukraine uh, on the uh, continental side, if you will. We haven't yet heard how or what Ukraine might do about Crimea, but what we see is, I think, a very coordinated effort to have a two-pronged approach on both sides of the river pressing south to eliminate Russian occupation. And is it significant that the Russians have moved the regional capital and new command center to Henichetsk? What we see is they are moving back and they're moving key elements back, their regional headquarters. What we saw in the last couple of days is they've even on the east side of the Nipper River moved their artillery further back because they don't want it to come under the fire of Ukrainian counterfire batteries. And so Russia is seeing the advance and understanding the advance and making uh, operational moves uh, to protect themselves as they move further south and east in the country away from the advancing Ukrainian forces. And how likely is it that Ukrainians will attempt to maintain that momentum now to stop the Russians from taking time to dig in? Well, we have to first acknowledge that the Ukrainian ability to do that relies on Western support. And I do believe if the West continues in its support for Ukraine, they will continue to advance and they are able to continue to advance. It is very clear now at the tactical and somewhat at the operational level on the battlefield, the Ukrainian forces are superior and they are winning. And how realistic is it that Ukraine can retake all of their pre-2014 territory? And also, do the people in the far east of Ukraine actually want to be part of Ukraine again? So uh, I'll just refer to my last answer for the first part of your question. If the West continues to supply Ukraine with what it needs to fight, Ukraine will continue to advance. Now, as to your latter question, I believe there are some small parts of the original two pieces uh, in the Donetsk area that Russia held after the 2014 engagement, there were a lot of Russian sympathizing people that lived in that area. But as I understand it, Russia has so brutalized them, conscripted them to serve in the army, and has so denuded their area of factories and anything of value that that now we're not so sure that they're happy to be under Russian uh, leadership anymore. So I am not an expert. I really don't feel qualified to answer that question. But here's what I do know. The rest of Ukraine, they want Russia out. Russia has lost Ukraine forever. Uh, the people of Ukraine 
do not want to be a part of Russia. And the polling is getting ever more severe that the Ukrainian people want Russia out of completely out of their country. And on that point you made about the West continuing to support Ukraine, should the West be giving the Ukrainians more Western fighters and tanks such as F-16 and Leopards, or or do we have the balance right at present? It's a continuing continuing process that we have to keep up uh, between helping the Ukrainians and not escalating the conflict. No, we're not giving them enough. And yes, we should be giving them more. Um, here is my basic argument, which is, is just stunning to me as a former military commander, that we have virtually built safe haven for the Russians. We have uh, told them that we will not be fired. We, meaning Ukraine, will not be firing into their country and we will not be coming to the aid of Ukraine in the form of our soldiers, sailors, airmen and Marines. And we yet allow Russia to fire into Ukraine from nearly 360 degrees on the globe, from the Northwest in um, Belarus, all the way around to the Black Sea and Crimea in the South. And yet we refuse to allow Ukraine to fire back into Russia. We refuse to give them the long range capability that, that means they could take the fight back to Russia. This I often liken to you know, Roger Federer or somebody agreeing to go to the French Open and never serve or tie one hand behind their back. We have literally hamstrung Ukraine in its ability to fight this war. And I do believe that Ukraine should be able to defend its nation with every ability they have and every ability we should give them. Frankly, it it just stymies me that we would we would limit Ukraine so. As a former Supreme Allied Commander Europe, how frustrating is it for you to watch what's going on at the moment? You sound really angry. Well, I'm I am frustrated. I'm not sure that I'm angry because when you, you really get angry, you lose your rational uh, voice. And I'm still trying to work inside of our governmental processes and other uh, venues to to advocate for giving Ukraine what they need and what really the to, this is it's nearly immoral what's happening out there that that we are so limiting Ukraine but we're allowing and assuring Russia that they can do any anything they want it, it's just really backwards um, the bottom line is in 2008 Russia invaded Georgia. The reply of the West was inadequate, and Russia still holds 20% of Georgia. So we literally rewarded bad behavior. In 2014, Russia invaded Ukraine the first time, took, depending on who you ask, around uh, 11 or 12% of Ukraine, and they still hold it till today. The West's reply, once again, allowed Russia to profit from its actions. So we rewarded bad behavior again in 2014. It worked twice for Russia. Why wouldn't they do it again? So here we are in 2022. They have snatched a bunch more of Ukraine. They have brutalized and, and, and ruined a nation. And here we are thinking about once again, rewarding Russia for a third time for its bad behavior. 
it's like raising a two-year-old. If you allow bad behavior to stand or if you reward bad behavior, what do you expect in the future? And so I believe it's time for the West to step up and decide, are we going to continue to to allow in 8, 14, 22, 25, 28, 31, Mm -hmm. 33, Russia to continue to do this and every time be rewarded for its bad behavior by threatening us with nukes? When you talk like that, it makes absolute sense what you're saying. And when you say that to people who have influence in power, what do they say back to you? Well, it it always goes back to the fact that, and and this is hard to say, but it's true. We still, I believe, have strategic deterrence. I believe Russia is deterred from using its strategic uh, capabilities. But we have completely lost conventional deterrence, and we, ha- we are quickly losing any sort of tactical nuclear deterrence with Russia. They understand that they can use their land army to cross internationally recognized borders and seize portions of their neighbor- neighbors, and the West is going to reward their bad behavior. And they understand that If they huff and puff and threaten to blow our house down with nukes, that we will capitulate and allow them to hold on to the lands that they gain. This is all about policy. When and where and how do we stop this chain of rewarding bad behavior by Russia? And in that light, do you believe that Putin realistically thinks he will be able to go on the offensive again? I think he is planning to do that. Here's what I, here's, it's really two tracks. I believe that Russia wants now to get to the negotiating table. You see them taking actions, pulling back S-300s and S-400s out of Belarus and other things. You see them taking actions to try to, over a quiet winter, fortify the four oblasts that they have seized in Ukraine. And then expecting the West to say, this is going to be too costly. Let's get to the negotiating table. Hmm. I believe, though, that Ukraine does not have a plan like that. As I mentioned earlier in this interview, I believe Ukraine intends to to continue to press on Russia through the winter and not allow them that time to refit, refurb, rebuild. For Ukraine, this is existential. They are preserving their country and their way of life. And that makes a lot of difference in the motivation of the militaries. And at what point do you think there will be a decisive victory in the war? I'm going to make you angry, but I'm going to say one more time. Depending on how the West supplies Ukraine will have a lot to do with the length of this war. If we were to give Ukraine the ability now to strike uh, supply depots, and other things that are feeding this fight from the near abroad, militarily significant targets inside of the areas around Ukraine that Russia is using, and and to start affecting their ability to move more troops and uh, material to the fight, it could go faster. If we continue doing what we're doing, I think the Ukrainians will still win, but it will take longer. And if you were leading the Russian operation right now, what should they be doing? What would you be saying the Kremlin should do next? 
Well, frankly, this new commander that we've seen has already started taking some some rather much more militarily significant acts. Before, the leadership up until this point has been disjointed and, and literally in a war of attrition, World War I style, shoot them, grind them up, flatten their cities and sort out who's left afterwards kind of approach. This gentleman is now much more... I think, operational and strategic thinking in the way he bombs. But as you know, Russia is running low on precise weapons and they're still firing indiscriminately into, you know, civilian areas. This is not operationally significant. This is terror. And uh, the way that Russia uses murder, rape, kidnapping, torture, it's all about terrorizing the people of Ukraine. General Breedlove, good to speak to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Kate. This is Zidrev.